the She Research Podcast. Uh, my name is Lisa Dive and I'm a guest host today and I'm speaking with Kate McKay who is a lecturer here at Sydney Health Ethics. Hi Kate and welcome. Hello, thank you. And Kate and I are going to have a chat about her paper which recently came out in the journal Bioethics called The Tyranny of Reproduction Could Ectogenesis Further Women's Liberation? That's right. I really enjoyed your paper. I thought it was so interesting. So I wonder if we could start maybe by you just giving that high-level summary, the elevator pitch, like what is this paper about? Yes, absolutely. So this paper was part of a special issue in the journal Bioethics that was all about ectogenesis. So the entire group of papers is about ectogenesis from different angles. And ectogenesis, just as a brief explanation for listeners is either uh, completely gestating or partially gestating an infant in an artificial womb or an artificial womb can have different names but that's the general idea so it's the idea that you either remove an extremely premature infant because of complications and you'd put them in an ectogenetic chamber, this artificial womb environment to help them finish uh, gestation in a, I guess, in a safer place, really, where there's uh, less likelihood of them getting injured. And the other potential um, use of this is full ectogenesis, where you would basically create an embryo in vitro and you would put it directly into an ectogenetic chamber or an artificial womb environment and you would gestate the baby the entire time that way. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of science fiction-y a little bit, except (laughs) that people are really pursuing this and in the last couple of years there have been some really significant successes. So there was a really significant success in 2017 with a team of researchers that gestated a lamb in an artificial uterine environment for four weeks. And then in 2019, a second team uh, did the same with fetal lambs for five days. Mm -hmm. And it is very aggressively being pursued for that first reason that I mentioned, which is saving very premature uh, babies. Uh So it's wanted therapeutically. Right. But then it's got this other aspect where it could be um, full ectogenesis, which is less therapeutic and more kind of replacing human gestation. So my paper mm. was taking the perspective that ectogenesis, especially full ectogenesis, where we have an embryo created in vitro and then implanted directly into an artificial womb environment, could have some emancipatory potential for women by separating what it means to be a woman and who gets defined as a woman from their biological reproductive functions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Okay. So I guess we'll get into some of the particular situations when you think that could be useful as we talk mm-hmm. a bit more about the paper. Could you maybe mm-hmm. just to set the scene, what motivated you to write this paper in the first place? Well, I guess there were a couple of things. So when I saw that there was a call, there was going to be a special issue on ectogenesis, I immediately thought that I was interested in writing something because I've worked on gestational surrogacy in the past, Mm -hmm. and I've worked on reproductive autonomy and uh, the status of women kind of in general and how it's tied to biology as well. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be reading a lot of 
the kind of mid 20th century feminism at the time. So that's kind of funny. I was reading Simone de Beauvoir and I was reading uh, Shalamis Firestone when I saw this call. And both de Beauvoir and Firestone have a particular story to tell about women's oppression and they tie it very closely to women's role uh, reproductively. So the fact that women gestate and bear and breastfeed or care for infants um, is the root of their oppression for Shulamis Firestone and Simone de Beauvoir. So I thought, that based on these readings, it would be really interesting to write a paper about ectogenesis now that we're much closer to it and whether it actually could improve uh, women's condition. And I thought that that would be cool, not only because of what I was reading, but also because in the journal, I didn't really think that anybody else would offer in a paper that would be coming from that perspective. Could you walk us through your main argument that you put forward in this paper? Sure. I guess to to follow from your comment, my, I guess my main argument was that women's status could be improved through ectogenesis by disrupting the connection of women, like who counts as women, mm-hmm. with gestational work. And this is only one aspect of reproduction and childcare, so it wouldn't be that this would be a kind of silver bullet for it. But I particularly recommended that we pursue ectogenesis as a replacement for gestational surrogacy and uterine transplantation. Mm-hmm. And I have particular reasons for recommending each of those in the paper. Yeah. Gestational surrogacy is very complicated. A lot of people have documented the sorts of harms that are involved and the kind of um, exploitation that's involved. And that's true even if it's a woman's best option. So even if a woman is doing this because it's the best thing for her to do and she's doing it fully aware of everything that she's um, engaged in, willing to take the risks, etc., there are still massive systemic issues Mm. that lead her to that place that are problematic. And the same is true with uterine transplant. So uterine transplant is when a woman actually has a uterus transplanted into her body so that she can gestate children. And this is also pretty new technology. It's had limited success so far. There are living donor uh, uterus transplants and uh, deceased donor uterus transplants, and both of those kinds have had pretty limited success. Yeah. And it's just, like, incredibly risky. It's just mm. really – it's a every organ transplantation procedure is extremely risky. But this is even – riskier in a way because you've got a fetus developing inside the organ where Mm. the woman is taking immunosuppressant drugs of different kinds. We really don't know how that will affect the fetus. And for whatever reason, and this is the limit of my, you know, scientific understanding, for whatever reason, a uterus is actually a very risky thing to have in your body. And when a person who's had a uterus transplant is finished with it, which is a kind of weird way to put it, but once yeah. they've finished gestating their, the offspring that they'd like to gestate with it, or at least making the attempt, they have to have it removed immediately. Like, it, it cannot stay there because there's too much of a risk of infection or mm-hmm. disease. Yeah. So it's so unlike it, having a kidney mm-hmm. transplantation for a few reasons or, or other organs. Yeah. And I just don't think that it makes any sense. I think that the desire and the technology that makes it possible comes from a warped place 
based yeah, so, on women's oppression. <laughs> yeah, the way that you describe the procedure, like it's it's very risky. There are lots of potential harms. It's not necessary for the sustaining of the woman's life. And with such a great potential for harm, and it's a very burdensome procedure as well on the woman and possibly on the baby as well. So what would be the reasons that would drive someone to do something like that, do you think? I think that there's a lot of pressure on women to have the right kind of motherhood experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that shows up in a lot of different aspects of being becoming a mother. But in this case, I think that it has to do with the social status of being pregnant and having that recognition socially mm-hmm. of being pregnant. Yeah. Um, I think it's tied up with that story that you tell of how you came to have children. There are all these sorts of phenomena that we have in our culture now that are somewhat recent, like the gender reveal party mm-hmm. and these things that have become enshrined, as it were. Like even the photos that people post on social media documenting their growing belly sort of month by month. Mm-hmm. All of these things make that kind of pregnancy something that is performative and participatory in motherhood. I've got one more kind of a, a question. Sort of that idea of ectogenesis being the thin end of the wedge of starting to break down these sort of social norms that are oppressive to women. I thought it was really lovely and optimistic that you thought that by releasing women from the biological function of reproduction, that would start to then break down some of the um, the gendered aspects of other parts of society and beyond actual um, the sort of gestation. But I, I wonder why you think that that would actually start to then knock on into other aspects of life. Even I don't necessarily see why if we relieve women of their biological function of gestation in some circumstances, mm-hmm. how that would then translate into breaking down say things like the gendered aspects of child rearing I'm not sure that that would necessarily follow although I I, like I like to think that it might but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on why you think that might flow on into other aspects of raising children I guess I kind of think and this is I think also informed by um, Firestone and some others who and actually like Sophie Lewis who wrote that recent book called Full Surrogacy Now I think it's kind of the idea that if we if we uncouple this really important part of the creation of children, like gestation, from what it means to be a woman, and maybe we remove it from what it means to be a mother or a good mother, mm-hmm. basically you have these two people, whoever they might be, right? It might be a heterosexual or it might be a same sex or it might be, you know, gender fluid couples. Mm. Um, whoever those two people are, who are entering into parenthood, they seem to come into it far more equally for me. Nobody's had to do nine months of labor that is sometimes quite difficult. Yeah. You know, not always, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes it is, and sometimes it has a toll on your health. And then you've had a uh, delivery, which is also sometimes quite difficult. Mm. Nobody's had to do that sort of thing. Nobody has the kind of automatic presumptive role as being the main uh, caregiver for the following year. Mm-hmm. And, of course, those two people will have to work out who's going to uh, make that decision and uh, to stay home and take on that role. But I guess I don't know. It doesn't seem obvious to me that in every case that would end up being the woman. Like, mm-hmm. 
if she has often these decisions are made economically. Yeah. Um, and if we were in a place where we had roughly equal parental leave for two people, etc., then I just think you'd end up having this decision made probably along economic lines. Sometimes that would definitely align with gender and sometimes it wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. And the less women were the presumptive person to be in that first caretaking role, the less likely they are to be the ones who have the worst economic spot as well. Yes. But then I, I temper that obviously with my acknowledgement in the paper that like this won't replace most pregnancies. Yeah. You know, 85 to 95 percent of pregnancies are still just going to be like regular unassisted ones. Yeah. But I think that's where, again, it kind of comes back to this thin end, thin end of the wedge idea where like if we've got a group of people in certain circumstances who have basically alternative means. If you could offer this as, you know, maybe some people don't want to gestate. They want to have their own kid, but they don't want to do it that way or something like that. Then I feel like it would be an option for opening up society to make it, to give people more equal starting places. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea. I think that's uh... <laughs> Sure, it's very optimistic. It is, but I think it's good to be optimistic. I like your optimism. That's great. I'd like it to be more than optimism, but I guess we'll see. No, but I think there are good reasons for thinking optimistically as well. I think obviously it's a long way to go, but it's little moves in the right direction. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Yeah, and it's great to think about the potential for new technology to shift things in a more positive way. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. Because it will shift things, and it's it's interesting actually too. Considering ectogenesis, we are as ethicists, we're in a rare position of being well ahead of the existence of this technology. Yeah. So yeah. we have the time to discuss like what we should do with it, how it should be arranged. Whereas mm. I often feel like in ethics we're playing catch up. Like I think when I think of CRISPR technology, I feel like ethics is playing catch up. Yeah, absolutely. To the technology and to the scientists who are kind of more, like, in gung-ho about it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We can be yeah. thoughtful and deliberate about our use, I guess. Yeah, and think about what roles the technology can play in society and what, what that means for the shape of yeah. what we value and, yeah, how we think Definitely. about parenting and reproduction more broadly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Lisa. Thank you for taking the time to read the paper and ask me such good questions. I really enjoyed it. And thank you very much for all your insightful comments. It's really interesting to talk to you and probe a bit more into the background behind (laughs) the paper too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Fantastic. my pleasure.